0: Well, good morning. It is always a joy to be with the people of God, worshiping our good God, is it not? It's also a joy to open the Word of God again with you this morning, and today we will be in Psalm 2, so you can turn your Bibles there. I said this last week, but in case you missed it, Pastor Eric is on vacation uh, for a few weeks. They just left yesterday, and so we've decided... Um, starting now, that as other men in the church, besides Eric, have opportunity to preach, we will go through the Psalms. So we started that last week in Psalm 1. Mark Severance will be preaching from Psalm 3 the following week, next week, August 4th. And so today, we are in Psalm 2. We pray that these times in the Psalms would serve as an opportunity for our church to better understand the Psalms, that it would prove beneficial to our worship, both corporate and personal, because the Psalms are a collection of songs and hymns and poetry all centered around worship of God. Calvin called the book of Psalms an anatomy of all the parts of the soul, for there is not an emotion of which anyone can be conscious, that is not here represented as in a mirror, or rather the Holy Spirit has here drawn to life all the griefs, sorrows, fears, doubts, hopes, cares, perplexities, in short, all the distracting emotions with which the minds of men are wont to be agitated. In good times, nothing better expresses praise to God than the words of the Psalms, and in bad times, nothing better can remind us That God knows our sorrows and our troubles. And that there is no better way in the midst of those trials to express our faith. The Psalms paint for us as well a picture of a big God who cares for his people. So with that in mind, would you open to Psalm 2 and we'll read it together. Psalm 2 starting in verse 1 says this. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Psalm 2, as we mentioned last week, is part 2 of of the introduction to the entire Psalter, the Psalms. Psalm 1 and Psalm 2, interestingly, are actually one literary unit, though two separate Psalms. Something interesting that ties them together is you read in Psalm 1, verse 1, blessed is the man. So we start with blessing, and in, the, and in this introduction, we end with blessing. In Psalm two, twelve, as we read, blessed are all who take refuge in him that is in Christ. Psalm 1 focuses focuses us on the overarching wisdom theme throughout the Psalms, how to live among the ungodly, namely that the word of God and love for it is the foundation of a righteous life. We see there, we saw there last week, that it addresses the individual and tells of two ways to live. Either a righteous life that is blessed or an ungodly life that is condemned. Psalm 2 introduces the Psalter with its prophetic theme, that there is a coming messianic king who will rule over the earth. It addresses the nations of the earth, its rulers, and all who would oppose God's rule. Psalm 2, when it was written, was intended to be used as what is called a coronation psalm. It would have been used each time a new king of Israel of David's line, was installed as king, tying it back to the Davidic covenant. Because of this, we're going to see a lot of messianic themes in Psalm 2 this morning. It's even used in the New Testament numerous times, from the Gospels all the way to Revelation, making it clear that this psalm ultimately will point us to Christ. So as we look at Psalm 2 today, we want to understand the first context where it was written. How did it apply to the people of Israel? But we also want to grasp the great things it tells us of the Messiah who is Christ that is the true king of kings and is the sovereign over all things. The overarching theme of Psalm 2 is this, it is sovereignty. God is shown as sovereign over the futile attempts of nations to overthrow his rule and his Messiah his anointed one is shown as ruling the whole world. Out of this sovereignty and the great king we see established in Psalm 2 comes wisdom, the message of this psalm, and it is this. That it is wise to submit to the Messiah because God has decreed that he will put down all rebellion and rule the world. So as we look at Psalm 2 this morning, we're going to see four parts of Psalm Two, you will notice that they follow the stanzas in your Bible. In verses one to three, as the nations rebel against God, we're going to see little s sovereigns versus the sovereign. In verses four to six, as four to six, as God responds to them, we will see the scorn of the sovereign. In verses seven to nine, as God establishes his anointed son, we will see the son of the sovereign. And as a final warning and a call to salvation is given in verses 10 to 12, we will see the salvation of the Son. So let us now look to verses 1 to 3 as we see sovereigns, earthly sovereigns, verse the sovereign. Psalm 2 opens with a question. Why? Why did the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? From the beginning of this psalm, it is clear who is in control because this question why is not a question that is actually asking a question. It is a question that is mocking. Why would they do this? Do they not know it's futile? It's not a legitimate inquiry. It's an expression of amazement, indignation at the posture of men who believe they can assert themselves from under God's rule. The scribes these rulers as raging as plotting describes the clamor and senseless noise of their vain striving to undermine god this word plot interestingly enough if you look at psalm 1 it says of the righteous man blessed is his, blessed ah, but his delight is in the law of the lord and on his law he meditates day and night This is the exact same word, the exact same form, the exact same spelling as this word plot. What consumes these people who stand against God, these nations and these peoples, their their kings and their rulers, what consumes them is defiance against God. It is their single focus. They consume themselves with opposing him. We see this in verses 2 and 3, as the kings and rulers of these nations pit themselves against God. It's a purposeful act. They're pushing against and placing themselves over God. They don't see his rule as good, but as binding, restraining, and imprisoning. They rebel against God and his anointed king. They want nothing to do with what God might have to save for their lives because they want freedom. They want to be the sovereign. They are trying to elevate themselves over God. Their disposition towards him is that he is a tyrant, a prison warden, one who restrains them from all that they think is good for their lives. We see this in verse 3. Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. Bonds and cords, the things that would have kept captives and prisoners as captives and prisoners. The kings of men... And those who follow them rebel against God. And they say, you think you can control us? We control ourselves. This would have been the position of the nations towards Israel at time of a coronation because it was a vulnerable time as there was technically no king on the throne and everyone was gathered together in celebration to coronate a new Davidic king. Israel would have been vulnerable. The nations around them would have seen this as ample time to come against them, to thwart the rule of this new king, and in doing so, they rise against Yahweh, against God, and rebel against his rule, because Israel is his theocracy and kingdom. Earthly kings, even of the Davidic line, are simply his divine representatives chosen to rule by him. Verses 1 to 3 wouldn't have just described this, though. Don't they feel like they describe our world today? We see nations and rulers and people positioning themselves, whether by military force or political maneuvering to accumulate power and to claim that they are the ultimate authority. They don't acknowledge God as supreme, as the ruler. They don't humbly submit to his rule. They have plans of their own, and they want to be the one. Yet this seems not just true of the rulers of our day, of the nations of our day, but of us as individuals. Our, hei- our hearts our idol factories bent on releasing ourselves from the subjugation of a good God so that we might become God of our own lives. No one in our culture today wants to be told what to do and restrained by the rules of who they think is a tyrant, let alone out of the words of an ancient book. No one wants to admit their true standing before God, so they throw off the notion that he could have some sort of rule over them. Whether the nations and rulers surrounding ancient Israel, or those in our world today, or us even, people see fit to go their own way, and willingly push and buck and rebel against the sovereign, the true sovereign's rule. It's unfortunate, though. It's unfortunate that they would do that. It's unfortunate that even in our hearts and our lives, we would do this. Because if we could see, if they could see the true reality, then they might consider acting differently. If only they saw the Lord's reaction in verse 4. In verse 4 through 6, we see the scorn of the sovereign against these earthly sovereigns. These rulers and most of mankind assume that their rebellion against the living God is justified. They explain away his existence, deny his abilities, and as, we see, and as we saw in Psalm 1, they mock the Lord. And anyone who would follow after him. They view God as a powerless fiction, not as a real authority. So we see in verse 4, He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. He mocks them. We see that what these people and these nations believe couldn't be farther from the truth. It leads the Lord to laugh. It's almost humorous. He who sits in the heavens laughs. He mocks them because those who mock the Lord and his king will be mocked. It tells us that he rules and sits in the heavens He rules over earth and all creation. He is sovereign over the finite territories that these sovereigns, these earthly kings, play king over. Any right to rule is given to them by him. Any success they have is governed by the Lord. All kingdoms lay at the feet of the true ruler and his throne is beyond them. He sits in the heavens. This reminds The words of Psalm 24, verse 1: The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. Add to this the words of Psalm 47, starting in verse 6. You don't need to turn there, I'll read it for us. It says, Sing praises to God, sing praises to our King, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with the Psalm, God reigns over the nation. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people gather as the people of the God of Abraham, for the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. God owns the shields and the nations and the peoples of the earth. They are his. He rules over all creation. He is the ultimate king. The sovereign who reigns over all little s earthly sovereigns. There's only one who can claim ultimate power, and it is he. Notice that it calls him Lord as it describes him holding them, mocking them in derision. Typically when you see Lord in the Old Testament, you assume that it's the covenant name of God that is Yahweh. This here, though, is not God's holy covenant name, but is another word which means master indicating that he is the sovereign master and everyone else, even these kings, are his servants. The futility of earthly sovereigns is clear to the Lord. He derides them. Scoffers of the Lord are in turn scoffed at. As we look at these verses, we ought to be reminded that the Lord is sovereign over all the comings and goings of nations and rulers and powers. So often we fret over the news and what goes on in our world, don't we? We worry that the world we live in will be changed for the worse by those in power across the world. We fear war, we fear tax hikes, We fear that the one who last ruled our nation, or currently does, or the future one who will, has or will enact some decree that will ruin our lives. We fear the political powers of this earth and watch them so closely, worrying about every move and every breeze of change, yet even they are the servants of the living God. I think our lives would be better. Don't you think your life would be better if you stop fretting about earthly sovereigns about the things in front of you and instead remembered that there is one true sovereign who reigns over all, the sovereign who owns all earthly rulers and has placed them where they are, and he might remove them as quickly as he can be, as it can be if he wishes. We see in verse 6 the Lord's reply And in verse 5, it tells us that he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury. Wrath and fury are actually at the center of the Hebrew poetic structure here, emphasizing them. The Lord's reply is one of righteous indignation. These words give sense, interestingly enough, to the flaring of nostrils, to heated anger, I picture Donald Duck and smoke coming out of his ears and his face is red. This is not Donald Duck, though. It's a burning displeasure at the pride of man to rise against God. This is a terrifying thing to behold. The burning anger of a sovereign God who owns everything. So we see in verse 6, the Lord's reply to these people and he says to them as for me i have set my king on zion my holy hill as for me noting that though the nations and peoples and rulers do one thing he will do exactly as he pleases in establishing his king on zion the place consecrated for the worship and service of the lord making it holy God has declared that though the nations and the rulers oppose him, he is backing his anointed. He has chosen him and he will establish him. This ought to lead to the terror we see in verse 5. Next we see that the Lord introduces the Son to us. In the verses 7 to 9, we will see the son of the sovereign. We have seen the sovereigns, the earthly sovereigns versus the sovereign. We've seen the scorn of the sovereign in reply. Now let us look at the Lord as the Lord's king is introduced to us. Starting in verse 7, we begin to see the reality of this true king's reign. These verses would have been true in Israel's time. For the Lord had promised a kingdom to come through the Davidic line that would result in a great name for David, land for Israel, security for the nation, but ultimately a promised seed, an offspring who would rule forever. We read this in 2 Samuel 7. The people of Israel would have looked at the coronation of a new king as opportunity for the everlasting kingdom and rule of the Lord's anointed to take place. But as we know, the earthly kings of David's line did not prove faithful to rule as God would have them. And so king by king, person by person, Israel sees he's not the one. (laughs) Nope. Next, he's not the one. And so they keep looking for another. Ultimately, what we see in the rest of this psalm is fulfilled in Christ, the true Messiah, the true anointed. This passage is actually is actually applied multiple times to to Christ in the New Testament. So we're going to see three things of the Son of the Sovereign's rule. We will see in verse 7 that he rules legitimately. We will see in verse 8 that he rules exhaustively. And we will see in verse 9 that he rules forcefully. The Son rules legitimately. In verse 7 it says, I will tell of of the decree The Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Yahweh decrees that his anointed, his Messiah, rules legitimately because he deserves to be the king. He is the one the Lord has chosen. He belongs there. To beget describes this. This is not a creation of a king on the spot out of nothing. No, this is the anointing of a king whom the Lord has placed there. He receives his kingly authority from the final authority himself. This is the recognition that the one whom the Lord has chosen is the one who is worthy of kingship. Hebrews 5.5 quotes the psalm and it states, So also did Christ not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And it is Christ who will soon come again to establish his legitimate rule over all the earth, over all creation. This leads to our next point of the son's rule in verse 8, that the son rules exhaustively. All peoples will be the sons. To the ends of the earth, his reign will go forth, and he will own everything. There is nothing that will not be under his reign and subject to it. Verse 8 says, Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. His sovereignty will extend over the people who attempt to throw off his rule in the early early parts of Psalm 2. His rule will extend to the most remote part of the earth and and the most remote people. There will be not an inch of territory that is outside of the rule of God's appointed king. This is a worldwide kingdom that belongs to God's anointed, his true son, who is Christ. This reminds of the words of Daniel 7, speaking ultimately of Christ, say, And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, when that shall not be destroyed. This is God's kingdom and therefore undefeatable. He has established it, therefore nothing will stand in its way. The rule of the son is exhaustive and universal and sweeping. No one will not be under his rule. We see next in verse 9, as it reads, You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel, that the son will rule forcefully. Why? Because there are those who would oppose him. Verses 1 and 3 of Psalm don't just describe the nations of Israel's day, but they describe those who will, pro, who will oppose Christ at his imminent return. If you would, turn with me to Revelation 19, starting in verse 11. We'll read and we'll see that Christ will rule in this way and that he will defeat those who oppose him. This is one of the times in the New Testament where we see the language of Psalm 2 used. Revelation 19. I even referenced this last week. We'll read verses 11 to verse, to verse 16 first. This is what it says. Then I saw heaven open to behold the white horse. The one sitting, it, sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. Verse 14, And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them, get this, with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the wrath of God the Almighty of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Go down to verse 19. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him, who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And it says of these people, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. What we just read was a picture of the son's forceful rule. If he must, he will rule forcefully. Christ will smash his opposition in pieces like you see of pottery, of earthenware. It will be easy for him. But these aren't objects like pottery. These are people. His rule is described in verse 9 and like we just read in Revelation 19 as with a rod of iron really a scepter the king's scepter here has now been turned into a mace, a club and one of iron that is strong and will not bend and it will be used to handle all opposition that stands before him with overwhelming force opposition will be pulverized Christ was not welcome the first time he came. He will not be when he comes a second time. This is a warning to all who now still stand against God's rightful rule over them, that every knee will bow, whether by worship or by force. It is out of this understanding that Christ will rule, regardless of attempts to thwart him, that we must continually remember who wins in the end. So many Christians, we ourselves, are consumed with fear over our temporal world. We must remember that we know the ultimate destination of history. We know that God is ultimately victorious. This is certain, for it is the very decree of Yahweh, God himself, who says, you shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. You can take that to the bank, no matter the state of the nations, and regardless of your situation and your family or even your personal life, through whatever life throws at you, you can be sure that God is sovereign, that he rules over every moment of your life, and that he is the ultimate victor that you can trust in. Yet there are those who will not and cannot have such assurance. They still stand against God and his king and his rightful rule over their lives. They shake their fists at him and say, you will not control me. They do not acknowledge him as God. They do not acknowledge Christ as his king. For those individuals who are like the rulers described in Psalm 2, friends, this may even be some of you here today this fourth part of the Psalm 2 that we will look at calls to you. We've seen in the first three segments that of the, we have seen temporal sovereigns of the world pitting themselves against God. We have seen the true sovereign who is God responding in ridicule. And we've seen the righteous rule of God's Son. So now, turn to verse 10 and we will see the salvation of the Son. This is a final warning that we read in verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. The psalmist tells them that in light of the rule of God's anointed king that they ought to act in wisdom, which is ironic because they're kings and you would think they had wisdom. He gives them a final warning. This is a summons to now take heed to the king the Lord has anointed and established the one who is ultimately the king of kings. It's a call, a summons to examine their futile deeds. We see him tell them that ultimately, in verse 11, wisdom is worshiping the Lord. He says, serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Joy and trembling, joy and fear is a strange combination, isn't it? To have real fear and to have real joy but the reason for real fear is that our God is a holy God and one who is a consuming fire as Hebrews 12:29 tells us. The reason for joy is that if you worship the king, you're in his good graces and there is no better place to be than in Christ. This aspect of fear with rejoicing, trembling with rejoicing reminded me of a scene from C.S. Lewis's work The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. When in Narnia, the children meet Mr. and Mrs. Beaver, who are beavers, and describe the mighty lion who is Aslan to them. Lucy asks, is he a man? Aslan, a man, said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Do you not know who is the king of the beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either brave than, braver than most or else just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe. But he's good. He's the king, I tell you. Before God, to have joy without trembling is presumption, pridefully presuming upon God's grace. His very nature demands we have a level of fear, of respect, of awe, of trepidation before Him. Yet the goodness of who he is for those who have been made right before him leads to great joy. And it is from this that we see in verse 12 a call to submit to the son. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. This is not a lighthearted invitation to reply to. It's wedding season, and I'm sure, like us, many of you have a few wedding invitations on your fridge that you've had to reply to, maybe you forgot to reply to. Usually it's pick this meal or that one, chicken or fish, or hey, let us know you're not going so we don't have to pay for you. Sometimes you choose the fish over the chicken, and you immediately regret it. But to say no to a wedding of a loved one, or perhaps even a friend, it might lose you some brownie points. But this that we see, kiss the sun is not an invitation. There are far more than brownie points at stake, far more than your chicken or fish. This is a final call, a summon from God Almighty to worship his son, Jesus Christ. This is serious. This is final. Exodus thirty-four fourteen tells us, you shall worship no other god, For the Lord is a jealous God, and God is jealous for the glory of his Son. His anger is kindled when the affection designed for him is given to another. God will not share his glory. Don't get it wrong. He he will not stand you worshiping that which is not him. There's no playing games with God if you love your independence or your own self or your sin more if you love to be God of your own life, if you love possessions more, God will not tolerate it. God will either be your, treas- your treasure or your enemy, and his son Christ will either be your treasure or your enemy. There's no different way about it. This psalm, this call to kiss the son, gives us two good reasons that we ought to do so, that we ought to worship Christ. The first thing we see is to avoid judgment. We read, Lest he be angry and you perish, and the way for his wrath is quickly kindled. God is a God of infinite holiness, of infinite perfection, and you ought not trifle with his patience. For to delay in bowing the knee before him is to put oneself under the threat of his eternal judgment. It's not hard to have people say nice things about Jesus when the only Jesus they know is the gentle Jesus of popular culture who demands nothing of anyone. But that is not the Jesus we see in Scripture, and it is not the Christ that we see here. We live today... In an era of divine patience, where God is holding back his wrath so that many might come to know him and be saved. But make no mistake, God will pour out his wrath on all who rebel against him. They will be smashed into pieces. So do not trifle with this summon to turn to Christ. It is serious. His merciful offer does not extend past our deaths. It's not only a call to avoid judgment though thankfully it's a call to experience blessing there is so much grace presented in verse 12 it's grace that you do not deserve for this is a call to god through christ how is it that one might come to love the son to revere god's anointed to worship god himself to love him to love his word this is only possible through the work of christ On the cross, there is no other way to experience true blessing, no other way to experience the joy of being right before God. There are maybe some of you here today that may find yourselves still rebelling against God. Do not miss the gracious opportunity presented to you in verse 12. The only safe place from the wrath of God is in God himself. Everywhere outside his care is dangerous. If you see the God pictured in Psalm 2 as frightening, you might on your own try to run away and hide. But there will be nowhere that is adequate to cover you. Don't be mistaken. There is a safe place from the wrath of God, though, against sin, And it is in Christ, the very Son of God we see here, because it says, blessed are all who take refuge in him. You've heard John 3.16 many times, I'm sure. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. Friends, this son we read of in Psalm 2 is the very same son who came to earth as both fully God and fully man and lived a perfect life before God and man. He died in the stead of sinners like you and like me and he rose again victorious over sin and over death so that all who might trust in him for salvation would be saved. Trust in the finished work of Christ if you find yourself still rebelling against him. Trust in his work on the cross alone and you will be saved. Rely on his blood alone to cleanse you from your sin to give you right standing before God. But you must understand that it will mean you no longer trust in yourself. It will mean that whatever crown of authority you have placed on your head, you must lay down, acknowledging Christ, the Son, alone as Lord Prince Edward Augustus, who was the father of Queen Victoria, it's okay if you don't know who that is. He put it this way, though: on his deathbed, he feared for the state of his soul, and so his phys- his physician tried to soothe him, tried to calm his mind by reminding him of his high respectability and his honorable conduct and the distinguished place of being a prince. And this is what he said. He stopped his physician at once and said this, no, remember if I am to be saved it is not as a prince but as a sinner. We cannot come to Christ with our crowns on our heads. Rather, we must have the appropriate fear and trembling and humility of a sinner. This is so that we may receive true joy. This is is the great blessing of taking refuge in Christ. There is security. There is sweet fellowship. It is here that you speak to him as a caring friend, and he ministers to your deepest needs. Do not presume upon the patience of God. He will execute his wrath at the appointed time. Today is the day of salvation, yet tomorrow will be the day of wrath. If you would come to know him, he will give you rest. For his yoke is easy, his burden is light. In the safety of the salvation of Christ, there is endless joy. There is blessing. Nothing compares to it. Psalm 2 reminds us that there is no other sovereign than God and that it is foolish to think otherwise. To think that we might be able to rule our lives is foolish. We must worship the true sovereign. God is the only true sovereign over this world and over your life. As Christians, this ought to give us great hope, for we can trust him in all circumstances and at all times because he rules over even the small parts of your life, no matter the headlines you read in the news, no matter the tragedies that you experience in your life, in this world, no matter the tumult present in your life, you can be sure that there's a good and a sovereign God who will care for you, who loves you, who wants to see you be truly happy and blessed. There is a good and sovereign God who watches over you and he is victorious. It is his decree. It will happen. We see that it is wise to submit to the son in psalm 2. To submit to God's anointed king who is Christ because he will soon come and establish his kingdom and eradicate all opposition. All will soon submit to him, to him, whether by worship or by force. My prayer is that you would find blessing in his reign because you can rejoice in knowing Christ, finding peace in his wise and good rule. As we close, let's turn to Revelation again. This time we will turn to Revelation 5 and see a picture Revelation 5, starting in verse 6 is where we'll start. In between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain. With seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayer, prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. I am so happy and so glad that the king we see in Psalm 2 is this king, who saves a people for himself, that they might reign with him and have true joy in worshiping the true sovereign who reigns. Would you please pray with me? Lord, we admit that so often we want to throw off your rule from our lives. Lord, even those who have trusted you, we feel this pull Lord, we pray that you would help us to acknowledge the true sovereign's reign, that we would see you as a God who sits in the heavens, who rules over all creation, who rules over even the nations and the people and the things happening in our lives today. Lord, humble us before yourself. Lord, give us true fear, but true joy before you. Help us revere you and love you, Lord. Lord, if there is anyone who has not trusted you, Lord, who does not revere you as God, who has not turned to Christ, Lord, please humble them now. Lord, do a work in their hearts to change them and bring them to life that they may see the glories of the gospel of Christ. Lord, may he be Lord of their life. May they see him as the true sovereign. Lord, give us anticipation and hope as we look to the return of Christ. Lord, and in light of it, may we live lives that honor you, that worship you in sacrifice, and that love you. In Jesus' name, amen.